Thank you, Mona and Dr. Halverson. I'd like to invite the congregation to join me in taking up your Bibles just now. We're going to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 53, and we'll be reading verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our brother Dean will now bring us this morning's message, What Kind of God Do You Know? In a real sense, I feel inadequate to bring you this subject today, but it's, it's a subject that I've wrestled with and uh, thought a lot about, and in recent um, months, it's been very real to me. What kind of God do we really know? Perhaps we can subtitle it, God's Surprises. God's Surprises. I work with a blind man at my clinic he was blind from birth. I, I have studied him. He's happy. Seems to be. He has a seeing-eye dog. He can walk about three blocks or so to his home, straight as an arrow, even without his dog. Somehow, blind people just have a a sense that they know just just where to walk, um, and that's across the busy street. I've often thought to myself, how would I describe to him a red rose? How how would I describe to him a a lavender orchid? How would I describe to him a sunset? How would you do that? True story of another person, a little boy, two years old, innocent little fellow, was in a fire, and his arms were literally burned off. He was laying in his hospital bed. Taking nutrition through a long straw held by his feet and his toes, where was God? Where was God when the man was born blind? Where was God when this little boy had the fire? I went to school with a friend of mine through academy and college. He, he loved baseball. 
Oh, he loved baseball. We played baseball together. He loved basketball. We played all those things. Um, about the time we went off to Thailand, remember he came to visit us just before we left, and he was having some strange symptoms. And uh, his life was radically altered. He was given a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, and his life has been altered significantly. But through it all, he used to be, in, in academy, he used to be one of the rabble-rousers. He, uh, he was always in trouble. And we hung in there together. <laughs> but anyway, through all this, as he got multiple sclerosis, his eyes turned to God. And all these years, he's been involved in education work in one of our conferences. He's still, after retirement... He still works at the conference office with his little cart, drives to the conference office, gets his little cart, goes in and has his office, does his thing for the education of youth. In the last few months, last eight months or so, he's had a real downturn. And uh, he's at times been discouraged, you know. I think it's kind of like John the Baptist in that dungeon. He had actually seen the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus' head in the form of a dove. No question in his mind that Jesus was God who came to earth. No question. But yet he's trapped in a dark, dingy dungeon, lousy food, probably rats. It was cold. Then his, his mind began to waver. Is this really the one that was to come? Last night, I, I called my friend Glenn, the one that has multiple sclerosis. He's on hard times. It appears that his disease may be advancing. Recently, I'm going to talk about it a little later, I found a text of all places in the Old Testament buried somewhere there in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 20. Old King Hezekiah. He, told, he was told he's going to die. He started pleading with God. These words just jump out at me. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, but there's more. I have seen thy tears. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. More about that a little later. A preacher friend of mine, whom I admire very, very much, and I've heard hundreds and hundreds of his sermons, he was traveling California, and he stopped in a motel for the night. <laughs> he got up in the morning and um, pulled open the drawer beside his bed there, and there was a Gideon Bible. He thought he would have some devotions. He opened the leaf of that Gideon Bible, and here's what he read. Somebody had left him a note for anybody who opened that Bible in the future. Here's what it said. Hello, sheep. Bah, bah. Make sure to keep following orders. And keep obeying scare tactical fiction stories 
in this book. In order to give your life purpose, after all, if you can't think for yourself, you may as well follow the leader. (laughs) What kind of an agnostic or atheist would leave that message? Perhaps he had never opened that book to read things like this. What does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I don't think he'd ever read those words. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. 1 Corinthians 1. The Bible tells us that an evil man hath done these things we've been talking about here. Jesus said it in one of his parables. And I think to try to get an answer to some of these things. In my Bible, there's 1,462 pages. Perhaps that's a good place to start looking for answers. What do you think? You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness with his major temptations, what did he say to Satan over and over again? It is written. It is written. It is written. So maybe that's a good place to start in the it is written section of the world's literature. So let's go there this morning and I invite you to do two things with me. One is to let's take a journey through scripture and see what we can learn about the question, what kind of God do you know associated with God's surprises? The second thing I'd like you to do with me is to Go with me to these scenes in Scripture as though you are there. I love to do this. Go with me, all of us. Let's go and be with the people we're going to read about. Go and just be an observer or a participant, if you wish, to these places in Scripture. We're going to start in the first part of Scripture. Let's start in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We first get a glimpse of who God is with this story. A perfect paradise, that Garden of Eden, we all know that. We can't imagine what it would be like, but we can only see in our imagination what it might be as we read the words. A perfect creation, a new man and woman, perfect, perfect, perfect. Can you imagine that? Nothing evil in them. And God gave them the power of choice. It was a principle of his government. It had to be that way. Otherwise, people serving him, it would be worthless. It would be meaningless if he made them worship him. That's no good. Man sinned. Immediately according to the Bible, they knew something bad had happened. They knew they were naked. Prior to that sin... They had a robe of righteousness about them. They didn't need any clothes. They had God's righteousness about them. But now suddenly we find Adam sewing fig leaves together. 
fig leaves to make aprons for themselves, according to Scripture. You know, this is the first place, I think, in recorded biblical history where man tried to do something about his own righteousness. He had lost God's righteousness, but he sews fig leaves together to cover himself. Important point, I think. Then, you know, God said, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Well, now that could have meant a number of things, could it not? It could have meant instant death, tomorrow night, one week, one month. How many years did Adam live? 936 years, according to Scripture. Yeah. So we see God's mercy and his judgment mixed here, as it always is in Scripture. His mercy and his judgment. Then for Eve, childbirth would be painful. Then for Adam and Eve, the roses would have thorns and thistles would come as a result of sin. Then to the big issue, God had given to Adam the job of naming all the animals. Oh, what a wonderful job he had. Loving animals. We all love animals, I think. Um, and then, after Adam sinned, God, there had to be a first time when God and Adam killed a lamb, an innocent little lamb. It must have been horrible for Adam to go through that experience. Absolutely horrible. Cut the neck of the lamb, and God made skins as clothes for Adam and Eve, according to Scripture. But for that first time it happened, but then that's the horror. But then the beauty, God pointed Adam ahead to the cross of Christ, ahead to the cross. Genesis 3.15, bruise his head, thou shalt bruise his heel, meaning Jesus on the cross. So Adam had hope. Can you imagine Adam's guilt at that time? Can you even imagine his guilt? You're standing there, remember. You're observing. And you see Adam with bowed head, having that horrible guilt. And then throughout his life, 936 years, he remembers, he remembers that moment. The, Adam, the guilt Adam had to bear was very, very heavy. But there's a way out, Adam. Oh, Adam, look to the cross, look to the cross. So we see a glimpse of God in his justice and his mercy. We next stop down in Genesis 6. We see an old man with a white beard. That's usually how he's presented. Old man Noah. The Bible says that man's heart was only evil continually. Every moment, every minute of the day and night, evil continually. It was so bad that God said, I repent that I've even made these people. They're going quickly to their deaths. I will destroy them. But for the sake of Noah, who was a godly man, Adam lived 936 years. Noah preached 120 years. God's justice and God's mercy. Here it is again. 120 years. You know, that man was mocked according to Scripture. He was derided. He was made fun of. 
They said, thought he was delusional. 120 years is a long time, my friends, to preach a sermon about there's going to be a flood when there'd never been rain. <laughs> there'd never been even rain. What do you mean a flood? So we begin to see a glimpse of God's mercy and justice again, God's character. When sin abounds, as it did in that day, God has to deal with it. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God. It cannot. So we see God's mercy and His justice. Let's stop down at a big moment in biblical history. One of the greatest that I've ever studied and thought about. Moses, the Exodus. We've been studying about it in Sabbath school. And we find this story all through Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. We find the beautiful, glorious glimpse into God's character and his surprises. God's justice, yet unbounded mercy, as we quickly go through this story. Story of the Exodus. Moses grew up in Egypt. He was surrounded in a palace, a pagan palace, with all kinds of evil, all kinds of temptations. Remember, we're there with him in the palace now. We're there with Moses as he grows up as a young boy, teenager, into his 18s and 19s. All kinds of, all kinds of evil present there. Yet somehow Moses kept his vision clear. He was, you know, heir apparent to the throne of Pharaoh. I'm reminded at this point of a... Of a a minister friend of mine who went to the, the Middle East and he went to this museum in Egypt. And there is a mummy in that museum today that the Egyptians have identified as the Pharaoh who took over being Pharaoh, the spot that Moses was to have. Can you imagine this minister looked down on the face of this mummy, and here's the Pharaoh laying there as a dead mummy. Moses is in heaven. So we know the story. Moses killed an Egyptian because he was hurting an Israelite. They were slaves. Um, he had to flee into the desert. There he finds a wife, he has a family. He settled down into retirement, it's called. I don't know what that is, but anyway, something called retirement. <laughs> and Moses, <laughs> Moses is out there tending sheep far away from pagans and far away from Egypt. The burning bush, we know the story. The burning bush that wouldn't go out. And then some voice out of heaven says, Moses, take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Oh, Moses, shivering, shuddering, shivering in his boots, shivering. Um, he followed God's lead and he went back to Egypt. And there some transformation happened. Apparently those 40 years out in that wilderness, something happened to Moses, a peace and confidence, something. And then the voice of God, he went back to Egypt, a changed man. You realize Moses, Pharaoh could have killed him in a second. But he went in before Pharaoh, fearless, and said, Pharaoh, 
Let my people go. Now Moses identifies himself with the Israelites. Let my people go. God's words, but Moses, a spokesman. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is this God? I don't know any God like this. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, Moses said, you will. The story in Exodus, you will know. Then come the plagues, and then the final plague, with the firstborn being killed. And a million plus people. You know, the Bible says that 600,000 men went out of Egypt. That was plus women and children, and goats and sheep and camels and cows, plus a mixed multitude. It talks about a mixed multitude in Exodus. So we have over a million people going out into the desert. And that night, a great cry went up over all the land of Egypt because the firstborn of all the animals, from Pharaoh's household down to the lowest member of that society, all the firstborn died. That was too much for Pharaoh. Get out of here, he said. You go. And the Egyptians with it. Somebody in Sabbath school class this morning said, yes, the Egyptian says, please go. Take my gold and silver. Just go. Go, go. Now, out in the, out in the, uh, out in the desert there, the uh, children of Israel, they had been saved at the Red Sea. Of course, Pharaoh changed his mind and chased them three days out on the journey. <laughs> he parts the Red Sea, and they go across on dry land. They had that miracle. They had the cloud by day, the fire by night, three major things so far. They had water out of the rock. They were thirsty and tired and complaining. The rock, which represents Christ, water came out of it. I can't help but think when we think of that, of the water that flows from the throne of God up above. Water, eternal life water, flows from the throne of God. They were protected from wild animals and snakes and all sorts of things out in that desert. Um, And still... They rebelled. They rebelled so bad that God told Moses, I'm just going to wipe them all out. Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out and start over with you, Moses. Wow, what a temptation. Moses, going to start with me, Lord, huh? Oh, Oh, Moses was too too God-fearing. He was too God-centered. God had embedded his mind. God's truth had washed through his mind so much that Moses didn't want to hear any of that. He says, Lord, what will the Egyptians think of you bringing these children of Israel out into the desert and then you kill them? Lord, think again. Can you imagine talking back to God like that? That's what the Bible tells us he did. He talked back to God and reasoned with God. Then in another place during these, this story, Moses actually offered himself Lord, if it be necessary, take me, but save the children of Israel. Oh, what a story. That points us through to the cross of Christ again. Moses was willing to offer himself to save his people. We're reminded of the words of Jesus. Greater love have no man than this, than man give his life for his friend. They rebelled so bad. God was touched and God relented. Later on in the scripture, God told Moses, Moses, 
you must now go up to the top of old Mount Nebo, and Moses, you must die there. We need to get a picture. Now remember, we're with Moses as he goes up to that mountain. We're all with him. We're hearing God speak. You must go up to the mountain and die, Moses. This was after 40 years that Moses had worked and sweated and stayed up day and night and prayed to God for these people and led them and pled with them. 40 years, a missionary in the wilderness. And the Bible says Moses' eye was not dim. He wasn't old enough to die. But God said, you must go up that mountain, Moses, and you will die up there. But first, Moses, I will show you east and west and north and south. The land of Canaan will be spread out there, and I'm going to show it to you. And, God, and Moses said to God, oh, Lord, let me go over. The words of the Bible, let me go, let me go over. Oh, Lord, I've worked all these 40 years for you. Let me go see this goodly land. And God's heart was being touched by that plea. And finally, God had to tell Moses, Moses, speak no more to me about this matter. I think God was really saying, if you do, I might relent and let you go in. But he said, no, you cannot go in, Moses. You will die up here. What kind of God do you know? Moses, you sinned in front of the people at the rock. When I said, speak to the rock, Moses, you struck the rock. Moses, you also said, must we bring water out of this rock? Oh, Moses, it's not your power. It wasn't your stick. It wasn't your voice. It was my voice, Moses. Because this happened, Moses, you cannot go into the goodly land. Moses accepted God's final statement on the matter. But you see, God had one of the greatest surprises in all of Scripture. You know what it is. No more had Moses closed his eyes in death in that dusty bed. Up on top of that mountain where the eagles soar and perhaps the lions roar, Angel Gabriel, perhaps Christ himself, was at that grave saying, Moses, Moses, wake up. Moses, wake up in your glorified body. You're going to the earth, the heavenly Canaan, Moses. You're going to the heavenly Canaan. What does this tell you about the God that you know? He wouldn't let him go to the earthly Canaan but he took him to the heavenly Canaan. What a surprise. What a surprise. That's how God is. He has a surprise for us. We stop down next in Scripture at this verse in 2 Kings. 2 Kings. Old, old Hezekiah. King Hezekiah. Let's just read it. Better than my words. Let's just read it. I beseech you, O Lord, remember how now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart. 
His opinion of himself was he had walked with a perfect heart. Okay. And have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore because he had just come down with a bad abscess in the days when there were no antibiotics to cure an abscess or no other treatment that really was cured. And Hezekiah was told that he's going to die. So this is his plea. And it came to pass afore Isaiah was gone out into the middle of the court, and the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Turn again, and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father. These next two sentences are just awe-inspiring. They just send me on a spiritual journey, I guess you'd say. I have heard thy prayer. Well, my friends, I think it's telling that to us today as well. I have heard my prayer. But the next sentence is even better. I have seen thy tears. <laughs> I have seen thy tears. We've all shed a few from time to time. Even big old six foot four me, I've shed a few. <laughs> I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. I will heal thee. What kind of God do you know? What kind of God do you serve? Are you familiar with God's surprises? Let's take another glimpse into Scripture. King David. Now we're there in the palace, you know, we're there with the children of Israel this morning. Uh, how would you like to have your innermost heart sins written in Scripture for everybody to read and preachers to preach about from then until eternity, until Jesus comes? It's all out there, David. Oh, my. David, you're adultery. David, you're, you're a murderer. Oh, boy, it's right there. For everybody to read in time immemorial. And then, before David realized, really, really, really deeply realized what he had done, God sent the prophet in to tell him a little story. Told him a little story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man, i.e., David, had thousands of sheep. The poor man had one little sheep. The rich man took that one sheep from the poor man. <laughs> Boy, was David in for a surprise. The prophet came in and pointed his bony finger at David and said, Thou art the man. Oh. David immediately realized in the fullest sense what he had done. And he said things like this, In my distress... I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came unto him, even into his ears. What faith was that after you'd had that kind of a sin? And then search me, O God. David was willing to open himself up totally. Who on this earth would say to God, Search me, O God, every nook and cranny of my mind, my heart, my soul. 
and see if there's any wicked way in me. Which of us would open up that to God and say, oh God, just search me. (laughs) If you find something there, do something with it. David's repentance was real. It was really, really real. Here's this mighty king who with one word could say, off with your head to somebody. Yet here we find him on his knees pleading with God to forgive him. Humbled himself to the ground. And in the process of this whole thing, writes the book of Psalms. And God is forgiving him, saying, What other place in Scripture can you find these words? Is it written about anybody other than David after what he had done? David is a man after mine own heart. Oh, what a God! What a God. Is that the God you know? Is God full of surprises? Let's touch down with Stephen for just a few moments in Scripture. Acts 7. Here we, hi- we find 52 verses of one of the greatest sermons in the entire book of the entire Bible. 52 verses of Stephen's sermon outlining the history of from creation onward, the children of Israel, to those arrogant Pharisees. They were so, they were so um, touched in their heart and their mind that they couldn't handle it. And as the rocks were beginning to rain down on Stephen outside old Jerusalem there, God had a surprise for Stephen. There were just three places in the Bible, very few places, where God allowed people to have a vision of his throne. Isaiah... His response was, woe is me, woe is me, for I'm undone, a man of unclean lips. There's this occurrence with Stephen who saw Jesus standing next to the throne of God as recorded there in Acts 7 and 8. As the rocks rained down, Stephen said, behold, I see the Son of Man standing next to the throne of God. Oh, my What kind of God do you serve? How about God's surprises? Stephen's place in heaven was secure. And he had the privilege to see Jesus standing next to God's throne. What an amazing event. Wouldn't you like to be there by the sea of glass to witness when Stephen meets Paul in the new earth? (laughs) Paul held the coats of the Pharisees who were throwing rocks at Stephen. Stephen certainly looked there and saw Paul's arrogant face staring down at him. What a meeting that will be, Stephen and Paul in the new earth. The next sound Stephen will hear is the trumpet in the sky. And Stephen's angel will awaken him and say, Stephen, wake up, Stephen. You're going home now. Wake up quickly. This Jesus that you know is coming in the clouds to take you home. Let's stop briefly with John. This teenager who met Jesus is a late, in a late teen period. He had an explosive disorder. That first day he met Jesus at the shore of Galilee, he had no idea no idea where his life would go. 
no idea what turns it would take. And it was to take him on a journey to the heavenly land. Let's read a little bit about what John said in Revelation 1. Let's remember, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. John records, I am, Jesus saying, I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And John was given the privilege of seeing Jesus among the golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, and if he, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And then the verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Unto me fear not, I am the first and the last. You know, it's as if Jesus was saying to John at that time, John, I'm the same, I'm the same person that walked with you in Galilee. I'm the same one that you saw miracles perform. I'm the same one, John. I'm now glorified beside my Father's throne. Then he says these words, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. That disciple was privileged perhaps he was privileged to be imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos do you think he ever had a discouraging moment he had worked his whole life he was now in his late 80s and 90s an aged old apostle disciple now he's put in a prison after they tried to kill him put him in prison on an island dark damp dungeon like place but there's a surprise. God has a surprise for him. He's going to just write the book of Revelation to end the Bible and to end the great controversy. John has the privilege of not only seeing Jesus in heaven, but to write the book of Revelation. Oh, what a privilege. Real Christians are not afraid of the judgment because they know in whom they have believed. They know in whom they have believed. There's just one more evidence in closing that I would bring to you to help answer the question, what kind of God do you know? Are you familiar with God's surprises throughout Scripture? We've just touched on a few of them this morning. There are hundreds of God's surprises in the Scriptures, if not thousands. There is just one more reason, however, to contemplate and think about and to ponder. That is how God can change the life of a sinner 
to a saint. Meaning, saint meaning you're set apart for God's service. Not that you're perfect, but you're set apart for God's service. Stories of this nature abound in the world, but this is one that really touches my heart. It was the late 1800s. There was a wealthy businessman in Chicago. He had all the money he could ever want. He had everything. Property, houses, businesses, everything. His whole life was geared towards making money. One day he heard about a preacher in London that was doing some amazing things in evangelism. Heard about Dwight L. Moody over there. And he decided, I'm going to leave my businesses and I'm going to go over there to assist him, just to help him. I just want to be with him and, and participate in this thing that's happening over there in England. So he... He arranges passage. It was back in the 1800s. There weren't any jet planes, of course. Um, So he books passage on a ship for himself, his wife, and his two daughters. The day came, and he had a sudden emergency business appointment that he couldn't go with his family, so he stayed back, put his wife, two daughters on the ship, going across the Atlantic Ocean to England. Out in the middle of the Atlantic, terrible accident occurred. The ship went down. A few days later, he got a telegram from England. The telegram said, Only one saved. Signed by his wife. Only one saved. Which meant his two daughters had died in the icy Atlantic waters. A few weeks later, he booked passage on another ship. Out in the middle of the Atlantic, the captain called him up to the bridge. And he said, Charles, this is the very spot we're going over right now where your two daughters perished in the icy waters of the Atlantic. The man bowed his head, walked slowly back to his cabin, and he wrote these words. He wrote these words in that moment of crisis that you you can only imagine if you've experienced something like that. And I ask you a question. How could a man write these words under those circumstances? How could you do it? When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the joy of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. And Lord, haste the day when by faith shall be sight, my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. What kind of God do you know? 
What do you think about God's surprises? How can a man write those words when he's just lost his two beautiful, innocent daughters? It's only by the grace of God. That's all it is. Shall we bow our heads? And Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet will resound. And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with, with my soul. Amen.